engine light on? Take the guesswork out of your check engine light with O'Reilly Veriscan. It's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASE certified master technicians. And if you need help, we can recommend a shop for you. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 218. And today in the show, Dan, myself, and our buddy Andy May are tackling listener-submitted questions on topics such as target panic, analyzing deer data, scent control, and advanced wind strategies. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, and today it's going to be a fun episode. It's uh, it's kind of a BS session slash Q&A session with the nine-fingered wonder, Dan Johnson, and also our buddy, Andy May, our DIY whitetail extraordinaire, and um, we're going to cover all sorts of stuff. Um, we've got questions related to you know, how to plan DIY trips to what kind of harnesses are good to use to scent control questions to um, everything about dealing with target panic, just a whole slew of of wide and and varied questions. But um, before we get to the questions, I want to first offer a correction of sorts. And then I want to dive into what's new with you, Dan, and and you, Andy. Um, But first is correction or sort of an addition to the conversation we had in last week's episode. So if you haven't heard episode 217, we had this episode with the folks over from Modern Huntsman, and the conversation was all about um, their perspectives on how we might want to think about adjusting the way we communicate about hunting so that it's it's um, easier to bring new hunters into the fold so that we're doing a slightly better job of improving kind of the the perception of hunting to the outside world. So there's a whole bunch of different ideas and um, perspectives and, and thoughts shared on ways to do that. Uh, and I think it was a really important conversation to have. I think it's an important thing. But there's one thing that I'm not sure I did a good enough job of mentioning. And it's this, and I just want to make sure we say this, that as much as we need to be careful and considerate about how we present hunting and how we communicate about hunting, um, as much as that is important, at the same time, it's my opinion that we don't need to apologize for hunting. We shouldn't need to feel like we need to hide what hunting is or that we need to not be proud of it. I 100% 
We should be proud of who we are. We should be proud hunters. We can do that, though, I think, in a way that achieves both things. We can be a proud hunter and also be positive representatives of hunting. I think there's a happy medium in there where we don't need to sugarcoat what we're doing, but at the same time, we don't need to present something that's appalling to the rest of the world either. Um, So that's just one thing I want to make sure that's out there in the world, is that there's a way that we can be true to ourselves and be positive representatives. Um, No need to pretend that we're not doing what we're doing. So that's my small, tiny uh, update from last week's episode. Dan Johnson. I guess before anything else, do you agree with that? Right. <laughs> wow. All right. Dan's excited. I'm fired up. I'm fired up. Okay. What are you fired uh, up about? Yeah, I agree with it. And kind of, I am fired up about life. You had a great trip, right? Right, right. Had a great trip. Um, and it's kind of funny. You mentioned this... Um, you know, not apologizing for being a hunter. Uh, my trip was out to California where everybody, you know, very liberal state, so to speak, especially the area that I was around and hunting came up in conversation. Um, cause I, you know, I would wear maybe a hunting t-shirt or, uh, what do you do in, you know, what do you do? And then my wife uh, mentioned that uh, I have a hunting podcast and all this stuff. And it was really, really cool to be able to say, you know, I'm a bow hunter. And by the way, people think that all hunting is done with guns out there. Uh, Every person I talked to. And then I mentioned that I only, you know, hunted deer with archery equipment and it blew their mind the people that I talked to that someone was doing something so primitive, uh, still these days. And they had this, you know, this vision that all hunters were gun hunters. And it was, it was awesome to kind of walk them through what I did, how I did it, you know, walk them through, you know, Hey, I don't, I don't just hunt for the antlers. I use the meat too. And that was another misconception that they had that they, they felt that they, people only hunted with guns and that they only hunted for, like animals with large horns or antlers. So people were pretty open to like that conversation though. Like they were curious. It wasn't like they shut you out as soon as they found out you were a hunter. Um, no, not really. The people that I talked to were intrigued first of all. And then as I kind of, you know, you could tell that they maybe had run into someone before or had an interaction with a hunter before that probably did not do a good job. But I made it a point to get my entire, um, I guess, spiel out there. So, you know, so I, I didn't compare myself to the stereotype that they had probably been uh, introduced to, first of all, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. I always love those opportunities when you yep. get to have talk to someone who, who is intrigued, you know, and, 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 offer the context you know so often like you said there's a stereotype and people never go never get a chance to go deeper into what it is we do so when you do get that chance i i get pretty excited about that yeah and it was uh it was one of the first times it's like three times that trip where i had to break it down for people and you know talk to them they're like oh doesn't deer meat tastes bad and i'm like <laughs> it tastes bad if you haven't cooked it right you know because we were up in wine country and we were doing you know the conversation was 
always about what kind of food do you pair with this wine or what kind of wine do you pair with this food? So I asked, you know, like we eat a lot of venison in my house and they're like, venison? I'm like, yeah, deer meat. And they're like, <laughs> you eat deer? And I'm like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a hunter or whatever. I, I go out and I harvest animals and I, you know, clean them up and I feed my family with them. And they're, they were intrigued by that, but then they they got excited because I was able to introduce something that I liked, which was hunting and eating deer meat to something that they liked to do. And that was pair wines with specific foods. So it took this guy off in a new, completely new direction. He's like venison. Okay. That's a, you know, that's somewhat of a lean dark meat. So yeah, you can do this or this or this. (laughs) And so like we, we shared excitement. So that was kind of that was kind of cool. That is cool. So, so are you cool. a are you a sommelier now? Mm, no, not even close, my man. <laughs> uh, but, but I did, dude. I did taste a lot of wines. We did go to a lot of vineyards. It was a unique experience. You know, that trip was pretty much brownie points for my wife. Uh, but it was a unique experience because, and as you know, Mark, you used to live out in that area, north of San Francisco is absolutely gorgeous country i mean rolling rolling hills um big valleys and then the last day of the trip we went to the pacific um we'd made one stop at a redwood forest um armstrong woods and it, it just you know the history in that area the you know we we sat underneath of a tree that was 1300 years old and or excuse yeah 1300 years old and 310 feet tall you don't get trees that you know like that in iowa and then we made it to the coast and took uh, highway one all the way back down to san francisco and stopped at uh point reyes yeah uh, national seashore Uh, dude isn't that nice like like a picture i mean it's like a painting it's just unbelievably beautiful yeah uh, you, had, you had some wow. great pictures. It seemed like you had a great time down there, but it yeah. did. It did seem like it. Um, and Andy, I'm not sure if you saw this online, but it seemed like Dan's most favorite part of the entire trip. He is not mentioning here publicly. I'm not sure why he's not mentioning this, but I saw that you became a you became a professional Segway racer. You were Dude. rocking the Segway. <laughs> Dude, I don't care where you go. Let's say you go, let's say the next time we're in, uh, where's the ATA show this year, Mark, uh, Louisville, if they have a Louisville Segway tour, you best believe I'm going to be on it because <laughs> dude, as, I looked like a nerd wearing a yellow vest and a helmet, but riding a Segway is really fun. And I'll, I'll tell you what else is really fun. Looking at the pictures of you riding on a Segway. <laughs> I, I laughed and laughed and I, and I posted that series of pictures of you on my Instagram story Yeah, and and we had so (laughs) many people message me just cracking up. So you brought a lot of joy to people's lives this weekend, Dan. (laughs) That's what I'm here for. That's what I'm here for. Hey Dan, I got a question for you. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you happen to see any wildlife out there? You know, uh, I did, uh, not a lot because, uh, I don't know if you know this, but there in October, there was a absolutely huge, gigantic fire that wiped out thousands of houses and thousands upon thousands yeah, of acres of, uh, I guess, land. And mm-hmm. I saw, ooh, man, I saw a lot, or I saw about four 
black-tailed deer. I don't know if one of them was a mule deer. I'm assuming it was uh, like a, bl- a black-tailed deer. Everybody calls them coastal deer out there, but mm-hmm. uh, all does. Now, the the guy who, let's see, we stayed at an Airbnb uh, the, the last two nights, and uh, the guy goes, this morning when I was taking my trash out, there were five there were five bucks standing in his yard. And then they, when he went to go take his trash out, they ran into a vineyard and, um, but that would have been cool to see. I didn't see him. Um, and the guy there, there is a hunting presence there because people do not like the deer eating all their profits. So they, ex- uh-huh. they allow hunters to come into the vineyards and, uh, harvest the animals. So that's, that's pretty cool as well. Hmm. That is cool. Yeah. I, uh, I, yeah. I know that area out there is very pretty. Like you mentioned, mm-hmm. I spent a little bit of time out there just after college. And, uh, I always, I wish at the time I, I was working there, you know, on my old day job uh, south of San Francisco during the fall. And so I was missing out on hunting season in the Midwest. I wish that I'd tried to figure out how to pull off a hunt out there. Just, I don't know what I would have done, found some public land and tried it. But I guess I was so caught up in the job and everything I didn't, but that's one of my regrets. You know, I was out in this very different, interesting place. I should have tried to take advantage of that. But, uh, if I could do it again, I would have explored that region up by where you were at. Cause it seems like there are some opportunities there, but, uh, yeah, that's cool. I'm glad you had a good trip. Glad that you got some brownie points. Um, do you have you been able to quantify exactly how many days of hunting this is going to equal? Is this equal to two weeks of <laughs> rut hunts, or, or what did you achieve? <laughs> uh, this is equal. This is equal to. Let me think. This is equal to one deer trip, uh, or one elk trip out to Colorado in September, and potentially a mule deer hunt uh, to South Dakota in. December. Man, well then this is a wow. wonderful investment. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about totally that. I don't, that. <laughs> I don't I don't know if the the ROI uh, is going to be uh worth it, but uh she was happy and you know, you know the saying when when mama's happy everybody else can be happy. So, yeah, man. That's good stuff. I'm glad it glad it went well. Uh yeah. Andy, I saw that this past weekend you were up to some fun stuff too at the uh Total Archery Challenge uh up in northern Michigan. How was that? That was great. Have you guys ever done it? No, I haven't. No, no. Yeah. Um, it's pretty incredible. Um, I went for the first time last year and, uh, you know, I've heard about it and see, seen some like YouTube videos and stuff and it looked like a lot of fun and, um, went last year with a buddy and, uh, it was just, it was the most fun I ever had shooting my bow just cause of, you know, they incorporate, they try to mimic the out West experience. So, you know, they, you ride up the ski lift, um, you know, to the top of the mountain and you kind of shoot your way down, you kind of hike in between, um, you know, each, uh, each shot. So like for instance, this weekend we shot, um, all day Friday, I'm sorry, all day Saturday and then half a day Sunday, but we put on 17 miles. So, uh, that was, that was in three courses, uh, 25 targets per course. So it's, it's cool. Cause they, they incorporate, you know, the physical challenge of, you know, hiking around a lot of guys will wear a pack and some guys even put a little weight in the pack just to kind of get that full experience of, of, you know, an out West hunt. And, um, it's a ton of fun. They got some really, uh, 
tricky shots. It's a lot of long range stuff. So, you know, um, a lot of guys kind of train for it and, uh, you know, practice their long range accuracy. Cause there's, there's some, you know, several targets over a hundred yards. Um, you don't have to shoot at that distance. There's no rule. You don't have to keep score. It's, it's really a fun shoot. There's no winner, no loser. Um, so if, if you walk up to a hundred yard target and, you know, you don't feel comfortable, you can walk up to 60 yards. You can walk up to 40 yards and you shoot it and have fun. Um, and you know, go to the next one. So it's, it's a great time. We met a ton of people and everybody is just, you know, everybody's like you guys, just cool, fun to talk to you, talk a lot of hunting, a lot of archery and just really, I don't, I don't know that I'll ever miss it unless something, you know, with the family comes up, I'll probably go every year. Wow. Yeah. It looks like a, it looks like yeah. a good time and I've heard just Everyone I talk to about it all says the same thing, whether it's the one here in Michigan or I know a lot of guys go out to the one in Montana. That seems like a great event. Yeah. Um, I saw you uh, I saw you make an 126-yard shot, Andy. That's impressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I shoot a lot. I shoot almost every day. So, uh, you know, I just – it. I think it's, it sounds a little more intimidating than it is. Um, you know, if you got a, a – a good tune set up and you know, you got to, you obviously got to have some decent form and shoot quite a bit. But, um, you know, these days they have some sites that, you know, you can kind of dial in, uh, you know, to extreme yardages. And I think what, what freaks a lot of people out is, you know, it's something that distance, what happens is their, your pin float looks huge, right? So it looks like your pins dancing all over the target, but if you can kind of ignore that and let that go and just run through your shot sequence, you know, you'll be all right. (laughs) Easier said than done though. I bet (laughs) (laughs) I don't have enough. (laughs) Yeah. I don't have enough arrows to participate in the total archery challenge. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a, it's funny. There's a bucket there. It's uh, you know, all the broken arrows, you know, that, um, you know, that people pick up throughout the course and it's just chock full of them. And, I don't know. I put a, a, a YouTube video on, uh, on my Facebook page, but there's a, on this one target you're shooting, uh, it was like 96 yards and you're, you got to thread it between two trees that are, I don't know, maybe 20 inches apart at a doe or, or I think it was a buck target. Um, but the, the tree on the right had about 60, uh, arrow inserts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the tree looked like it was about to tip over. It was so funny. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a good time. You go there kind of expecting, you know, you know, to lose a few arrows. I had some buddies that went for the first time and they and most of these guys had never shot over, you know, probably 50, 60 yards, but they they practiced, you know, and they got a sight, an adjustable sight where they could kind of dial into those longer yardages and they did, they did good. They did a good job. It was fun. Nice. Cool. So that that sounds like an awesome time, Andy. Um so, so I want to jump in now and give you guys two pieces of news from me. Um, I've got one piece of good news and I've got one piece of bad news. Which do you want to hear first? Bad. Bad. Yep, bad. <laughs> okay. The bad news is that me and Furter lost our Ohio lease. Oh, man. Yeah. Did they find uh. out? Did they find out that you merged with Ranella and they they said, hey, man, this guy's got some money. He has to have some money. Uh, let's charge him more. And then you're like, screw that. I'm not going to pay that. It's ridiculous. 
you know, that's an interesting uh, <laughs> scenario you paint there, Dan, but no, that's not what happened. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, just the situation is that um, the landowners um, have got to an age where they cannot live there anymore, and so wow. their children are selling the property. So, wow. yeah. Been there, man. Yep. Yeah. yeah. That sucks. It's a major bummer. Had a lot of really good memories out there. A lot of great hunting trips over the last, oh gosh, I don't know, six, seven years now. So, but, but how how bummed are you actually? Because it sounds to me like the last couple of years, although that that lease produced some big deer in the past, like it sounds to me like it was trending downhill anyway. It was trending downhill, yes, but still, like compared to anything I had in Michigan. It was yeah. it's still the best chance I have to see or kill a mature buck, you know, even though it's a small, limited property, um, pressure increasing, but, but nowhere else do I hunt where I was seeing those kinds of deer. Um, right. so I'm just now, now it's just like square one. The, the one thing is at least I had that in my back pocket, you know, now it's, what am I going to do for Ohio? So mm. That'll be a fun new challenge to figure out over the next couple of months, I guess. <laughs> Nothing like uh, summer timing for that. I guess it could be worse. So that's the bad news. I'm sure we'll have more to share on that in future episodes as I kind of figure out what my other options are. Um, good news, though. We'll we'll focus on the good. I think I saw Holyfield last night. Oh, wow. What? <laughs> yep. Um are you, are you laughing over there, Dan? <laughs> yes. You know, here's what's going to happen. Um, you're going to, you're probably going to, if I know you at all, you're probably going to change your mind, you know, and you might dedicate another season to this buck. Um, I just recommend sh- like practicing hundred yard shots from a tree stand. That way you can at least give yourself an opportunity at him this year. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I sense Holyfield fatigue from you, Dan. <laughs> Which no, is dude, fair. I just, dude, it's cool. I've been through the, I've been through the same thing, but um, it's just one of these things. I think, like for me, you know, I followed these bucks for a long time, like or for sets of deer for, or whatever for long periods of time, and it's the moment that you least expect it is the moment it will happen. It's almost like you forget about it. And then all of a sudden that is the day that Holyfield will show up in a shooting lane. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about it a month or two ago, but just how, and I won't belabor the point too much now, but just how my strategy this year is probably going to be to not be so single-mindedly focused on him. Like I've got a lot of things I'm going to be doing here in the off season to try to make sure I'm prepared, but I'm not going to, obsess over it too much and um you know if there's other opportunities with other deer i'll i'll probably take that too so how do you know it was him well i don't know 100 percent, but um i was able to watch these big bachelor group of bucks in a bean field uh, a couple hundred yards away with a spotting scope and it was right at last light so i can't say for sure but based off the brow tines and the main beam spread and everything so far it looks like the, the brow tines and everything match what he looks like um, and I thought, you know, one time I thought when his ear was like kind of backlit by the sky, I thought I could see a chunk missing from the ear. Um, so I'm not a hundred percent sure, but it, it, it looks like as close of a match as you could possibly get at this point in the growth. So 
hopefully he'll be out there again, whatever that buck was, hopefully he'll be back again sometime soon, and, and maybe it'll be with more daylight, and I can get a better look at him, but um, but encouraging that there's at least one mature buck close to this property, so uh, it, it wasn't on the property I can hunt, it was across the road from it, but um, but right there, and, and that certainly could be where he's at, so, so that was good to see, that was... Uh, That's awesome. Yeah. Very you get, cool. You got cameras out? You know, I actually don't. Um, I was, you know, usually I've, I get them out earlier in the year, but um, but this year I was thinking of just kind of holding off and getting them out probably right before I leave for Montana. So probably two weeks from now I'll put them out and just have them fresh batteries and ready to rock and roll and let them soak for, for a month, month and a half, and check them in August. So that's my game plan. Good luck, cool. buddy. Thank you, sir. Hey, Mark, do you have a um, an out west whitetail hunt playing this year again? Yeah, so I got I've got a Montana whitetail tag again. Um, okay. So definitely gonna do that. Um, and then small chance I'm I'm still undecided on whether or not I'm gonna do the North Dakota thing. Um, I've got I've scouted out some great spots this spring, so I feel like I'd, I'd love to get out there. It's just a matter of can I slip in the North Dakota trip with everything else I've got going on, without uh, you know leaving my family responsibilities too much so yeah right you found a bunch of sheds out in north dakota too right oh yeah yep found some (laughs) found some good looking sheds so i'd love to hunt uh one of that deer that i found with the drop time i'd love to yeah i'd love to get after that buck that'd be that'd be a unique opportunity so cool we'll see very cool well you could Um, always you could always get a flat tire i mean montana or uh north dakota is in between montana and michigan it's true. So car could probably break down. So uh, this is the phone. <laughs> the phone call I made to my wife is, "I'm so sorry, honey, but the cars broke down outside a piece of public land in North Dakota, and I'm gonna have to hunt here for a week." <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that'll seems work. that seems like that'll fly. <laughs> um, okay. So, uh, do you guys want to answer some some questions from uh, the listeners? Let's do it. All right. Um, Let's take a quick break then to thank our partners at Whitetail Properties, and then we'll get to those questions. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Brandon Swartzlander, a land specialist out of Illinois. And Brandon is going to be telling us about the importance of getting the next generation involved with land management. You know, that's a great question. I think uh, me personally, I think getting kids involved early, and maybe not just kids, but anyone who hasn't experienced the outdoors or, or land. I mean, it's, it's just such an awesome event. I, I honestly got to have to pinch myself sometimes because I get to do this for a living, but you know, when, when I have girls and some of them hunt, some of them don't hunt, but just, just being out, we all shoot, we all shoot bows. Um, and we all experience the outdoors. We shed hunt, we do all those things together. I just think that you can take away so much more by spending time, with whether it's your family or friends or whomever in, in the woods or, or, you know, on a piece of land, it's, it's, it's so much better than, than, you know, having a phone stuck in your face or a laptop or whatever. Uh, I just think it gives us an opportunity to go back to, to what we were raised on. And, and I think, you know, maybe, maybe that's missing to some degree in, in, in society today. But I, I just think when, when you introduce things at an early age, I think I was probably five when I started, um, in the outdoors with my dad, um, but it makes you want to be better. And it takes you uh, away from 
you know, things that, that can be a negative influence. I just, I feel like it's, it's such a positive thing for, especially with family. I mean, when you can, can do those things with your kids and, and your wife or whatever. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Brandon currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash Swartzlander. That's S-W-A-R-T-Z-L-A-N-D-E-R. I want to start with a softball here real quick. <laughs> this is this is really a softball. Um, we got a question from a guy named Jason on Instagram, and he said uh, he said that he's been that he actually just purchased some lone wolf stands and sticks, based off of what Dan and I have been saying about them in the past. But he did not like the harness that came with it, so he was curious: what types of safety harnesses do we use? What should we consider when purchasing a safety harness? That kind of stuff. So. Quick gear question here. Dan, what's your safety harness of choice? Well, I am using a lone wolf. I've been using the the lone wolf sta- uh, safety harness for a long time, but I've also in the past used those vests. So it's it's a, like a vest you put on, and all you do is have to buckle it one time right up front, very easy, and then you do your legs uh and you're done. And that's, it's a really easy way to, um, to do that. I don't use it anymore because I felt like there's points or times where it would restrict some movement. And I, I didn't like that. Uh, so that I went to a full harness and not the vest. So that's what I use. And and when you say you're using the lone wolf, uh, harness, that's not, it's not the freebie one that comes out of a tree stand. Oh no, it's not. Yeah, you're right clarify yeah it is not the free one that comes uh with the tree stand i have the the other one with the padded straps and all the all the all the goodies yeah because because those ones that come with tree stands while while i appreciate the fact they're giving you something i don't know anyone who actually uses those or or finds it to be a great option (laughs) no i have a box in my garage that uh of every tree stand i've ever purchased or have have received i have a box of, of safety harnesses that come with those tree stands yeah so. yeah what what do you use nandy um i actually use a rock climbing harness have you guys heard of anybody using those i have heard of that i have I've, yes I've, I've been intrigued by it tell us tell us yeah. more um well uh there's a, a a buddy of mine we actually uh when we when we all went down to louisiana it was uh one of the guys that met us at the bar um before that long before that um i had talked to him and he had started using a a rock climbing harness and i like the idea i I just don't like having straps and uh, you know an abundance of stuff like on my chest and shoulders and um i never did really like that so i like the idea of just wearing something around my waist um so he kind of had been doing it for a year or two, and I think he had some threads on archery talk and hunting beasts and that sort of thing. And um, so, uh, you know, he did some testing, uh, like some fall testing, like turning upside down in the in the tree wearing one, and um, you know, kind of the theory that rock climbers use it. Um, you know, so they they are safe, and I like the fact that you know it you still tether to the tree um, like you would with your your regular. Uh, you know, tree stand harness, except it comes around, um, you know, your right side. If you're, if you're a right-handed shooter, it comes around your right side and, and clips on to a little belay loop. And then your, uh, 
your waist belt and it's, it's just right there. It's out of the way. Um, I can have it really snug. Um, so that there's no, like if I were to fall, there would be no, uh, like, uh, there, there would be actually no drop. It would catch me right away. I'd, I'd literally just swing to the side of the tree. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 So I, I've been using that for a lot of years when I sit in a tree stand. Um, I do use a, uh, like a tree saddle sling, um, quite a bit of the time too. Um, but, but when I'm in a tree stand, I, I use my rock climbing harness and, and actually most of my friends have converted to that too. Yeah. I, I haven't gone that route, but I'm, I've always been really intrigued by it because of, like you said, less bulk, less straps, less stuff to have on you. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's gotta be nice. But, I, but I imagine you really got to know the right way to set it up. You need to be doing it the, you know, in a particular fashion to make sure it's safe, right? This isn't something to just buy a rock harness and throw it on the tree and think you're okay. You should probably do your research. Yeah, I, I'm not gonna. Yeah, I'm not gonna recommend it to anyone. Um, it's it's actually very simple. Um, I I feel I feel more safe in it to be honest with you because if in the event that you do take a slip, um, you you know you swing to the side of the tree and you're facing the tree, huh. so. You can climb right back up. In fact, he demonstrated that in a video. Um, you know, he kind of fell off the stand, and you turn and you face the tree. Where in a, a, a traditional tree stand harness, you might fall and you're facing away from the tree, which kind of have to spin yourself around. And you know, I think they're both plenty safe. But yeah, I, I mean, I don't go as far as, as to recommend it because I think you should do your research and make your own decision. But I, uh, for me, I I really like it and I feel completely safe in it. Yeah. You mentioned saddles too. I'm a, I've actually got a saddle on the way. Finally, I'm gonna try, gonna try hunting in a saddle this year and uh, see how that goes. So I'm excited to, to put that to the test. Very cool. I have yeah. one thing that is preventing me from trying a saddle, and and Andy, Mark, you guys both know that sometimes you are in some really thick and nasty type terrain where you know lots of vegetation and i just can't get over the fact that if you know i'm i draw with my right hand so if i'm facing one direction and a a deer comes from my right hand side i have to like i have to move a lot in that tree or like or let him pass Mm-hmm. If I, if I'm gonna take that shot, and that's something for some reason I can't get over that. How do you handle yeah. that, Andy? Um, well, it's in that situation when a deer comes on your your kind of your weak side, I guess, uh, or your off shooting side. Right. You know, you can uh, you can t- you can actually you know depending on where it's at, you can actually stay where you are and kind of twist. Um, you have a what you have is something called a bridge, and it's a little. Um, uh, like a rope attachment that that hooks to the tree tether and you can actually slide and turn and make that right-handed shot your other option is to kind of like you said creates a little more movement is is swinging around the tree to the left side to, to make that shot i i love hunting out of a saddle um because you wear it in like a pair of shorts you know basically yeah. um but there i don't think it's the best thing for every situation. That's just my opinion. Um, yeah. like if you're in a, you know, there, there's some, there's some trees I can think of that have maybe have a lot of limbs sticking out, um, that you can't trim, 
you know, yeah. um, or, or maybe like a cedar tree or, or pine tree or something like that. I think those are better suited for tree stands. Um, but you know, if the, if you have, um, a tree that, you know, maybe kind of splits up is maybe a single trunk tree or a, a tree that splits up into two trunks and you don't have a lot of little limbs coming off left and right. Um, that's kind of where they shine. And in a lot of times you can find trees that work. Um, you know, most of the time you can find trees that work in the saddle. I tend to get a little higher up in the saddle. And what's cool about it is you can, you can put the tree, you, you, you try to put the tree in between where you think the deer is going to come in yourself. So you're kind of almost using it as a shield, a blocker, whereas a tree stand, you'd be facing that direction or, or facing to the right. So you could shoot it, you know, going off to your left hand side. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so you're saying that you, while maybe you need to sacrifice a little bit of cover so that you're able to swing around the tree and stuff, you can account for that by height and being on the other side. Is that what you're kind of saying? Yeah. And another thing about the saddle that I, I I think is, you know, that kind of is a benefit to it. The way that you hang off the tree, you are shaped more like a limb. You come off at kind of like a 45 degree angle, especially if you're leaning, you look, right. you, you look more like a, a tree branch, a limb, as opposed to like in a tree stand, you look like a giant ball sticking off the side of the tree. Unless you're, you know, if you see a deer coming, you can stand up and kind of suck into the trunk of the tree and kind of blend in a little bit. That's, that's a better situation, but it, they, I've never, I've hunted out of them a lot and I've shot quite a few deer out of them and I've never had a situation where um, I thought it hindered me um, as far as having to move too much. And I've, I've had to move you, you, you know, you got, might have to pick your moments, but, uh, you know, if you're, if you're attentive, um, you know, you should have that opportunity where you, you have to move, you can do it really kind of slow and methodically, just like you would in a tree stand where you stand and you turn, you know, turn to make your shot, you're still moving. So I would, uh, I'd say, give it a try. Mark, what, which one are you getting? So I, I think I'm actually going to be trying two. I think I'm going to try the Kestrel, and then I'm also trying this new company. It's called Tethered. Um, yes. So I think I'm going to be trying a model of both and kind of seeing which one I like best and see what works. Yeah. There, uh, I know a couple of the fellows that are uh, were involved in developing the, the Mantis the te- from the Tethered company, and uh, they uh, there's some good hunters and knowledgeable guys and i'm really looking forward to checking that one out myself to be honest yeah you know it's been i've been intrigued with saddles for a long time probably ever since i started reading eberhardt's books um but but yeah had some of the same concerns dan had had concerns about how do you film with that um but but with all you know like the public land or different kind of mobile hunting that i'm doing these days it just seems so nice to not have to haul a stand and with you, you know, just have this, this thing you're wearing, walk in there, throw up some steps and there you go. I mean, that's, yeah. that's really appealing. So, yeah, that was really nice down in uh, Southern Ohio and those big hills and, you know, the, the, the big woods setting with the big hills and you're walking in, you know, there's a, there's one, uh, one spot that I really like that's a, a mile and three quarters in and it's, it's nice to wear a saddle and not bring that whole lone wolf set up in five sticks. <laughs> yeah. yeah but, so yeah, well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be reporting back, I guess, later this fall on how all that goes, but I'm excited. Um, cool. question here from Derek. This is an email question 
and and this I'm kind of me and Dan have talked about this a little bit in the past. I'm I'm particularly interested in your opinion on this, Andy. Um, and then I've got a little bit to add. But uh, his question is this: He says that over the last five years, I've missed more nice bucks than I've killed. When I get to full draw, I lose all mental control and can't seem to make a good shot, no matter how much practice I do before a season. I can put six arrows in a pie plate at 60 yards, all with a surprise release when practicing, but then I've missed bucks cleanly at less than 30 yards, so something needs to be done. I've always considered going to a back tension release to help force me to aim and not have to worry about punching the trigger. Um, People tell me all the time, though, that it won't work. But then I listened to podcast 198, which is, uh, which, end quote, that's a podcast we did with Joel Turner talking about um, this different kind of shot sequence that helps you deal with target panic. Now, back to his question. He then says, and you mentioned how you know other hunters who say they can get a back tension release to work well and to go off whenever they want. Um, you might not be able to answer this question, but if you can, do you know of a certain release that these guys are using, or is there a back tension release that you've shot that you believe you could hunt with? Um, he then goes on to say that with the price of back tension releases, I can't afford to buy a bunch and buy a bunch of them and test them all out. So any information would be appreciated. Mm-hmm. So, so Andy. You helped me last summer deal with my target panic, um, and we we did a bunch of different things. And some of these things we talked about with Joel Turner earlier this year. Some things we didn't. Um, could you could you just talk a little bit about what you and me did, and then and then also maybe speak to his specific question about whether or not a back tension release is the right option, and and what models <laughs> you might recommend? Sure. I, I uh, <laughs> this question hits home because I can relate. Um, I, from the, the, the moment I started bow hunting, I was naturally a really good shot. I, my, I, my first year getting a bow, I got in archery leagues and I started winning. Um, so I was a naturally a good archery shot, but I was a trigger puncher. I, no one taught me how to shoot. I had one of those releases that had a ton of travel in it. And, you know, I just kind of you know, hell, I was I was good at holding the pin on the target or close and, and making accurate shots. But come to find out, you know, as my hunting career went on, I, I experienced a lot of the same things that that this guy did. Um, you know, I didn't miss a lot of deer, but I put a lot of bad shots on deer um, shots that, you know, in practice, like he said, I could stack arrows. You know, you're shooting laser beams all sun all summer. You feel great. And then a uh, big buck walks out and you know, you kind of, you kind of come unglued, you make a terrible shot and, you know, half the time you don't even remember what happened. You know, I wasn't really in control of my shot, but I didn't have anybody to teach me. I thought what I was doing is, uh, was the right thing. And, you know, they don't teach you that really at the archery shops, you know, you go in, you get a bow, they set you up, they give you a trigger, you know, index trigger release and send you on your way. So it usually, uh, for the majority people um myself included um if you end up shooting a lot and hunting a lot it ends up leading to some form of target panic um and i identified mine about 10 years ago um and then i did kind of the research and found you know some people that kind of went through those same situations i listened to you know, John Dudley, and there's a couple guys, a couple really good archers on Archery Talk that, that helped me out. And uh, I did the work to beat Target Panic. And, you know, it was the best thing I ever done, ever did as far as archery, because I loved archery, but I found it so frustrating. 
um, you know, that I, it's almost exacerbates itself when you, you start feeling that flinch and that, that punching that I want, I got to go now. I got to do it now when that pin hits the, the target. So you practice more. You're like, Oh God, I got to get past this. I got to beat this. So you focus more and it, it, it just makes it worse. You're actually mm-hmm. compounding the issue. So I, I went through the whole thing. Uh, so I, I totally understand. Um, and I think he mentioned a, a back tension release. What I think he's talking about is what a lot of people refer to as a back tension as, as a hinge, um, a hinge release, which you see a lot of the target guys shoot. Mm-hmm. You can hunt with a hinge. I did so for a year and I made three phenomenal shots on three big bucks with it. Um, but it's not my first choice. It's a great one to learn the unanticipated release. And that's what you're trying to achieve. You're trying to achieve an unanticipated release. So it's hard to explain. I think I explained it to you, Mark, because I knew, I I know you're more of a techie guy. So I tried to explain it in a, a, a term, you know, or in a way that I thought might make sense to you, but like you, you, I told you, I said, uh, you know, imagine that you have this pre-downloaded app in your brain that whatever you look at, if you're staring at a bullseye, if you're staring at the lungs of a deer, whatever you look at, your pin is going to constantly center itself over that spot. You don't have to do it manually. It'll automatically do that just by you looking at the spot. Okay, so your pin will move, your pin floats, but it will constantly keep recentering itself, recentering itself over the spot that you're staring at. So I had to get comfortable with my pin float. Everybody has a pin float. Levi Morgan has a pin float. John Dudley has a pin float. Everybody has a pin float. They just have less of a pin float. Um, And then what you need to be able to do is run your shot execution independent of that. So what, what a lot of guys fall into is they get these index releases that one, there's, there's two real common ones, those really hair trigger, those really light ones that you like breathe on and they go off. Those are really bad. Those cause target panic. And then the other really bad one is the one I think you had, Mark, is one that you had to squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. And it like had all this travel in it Uh before it fired. And what, what that does is your brain picks up on that movement and you start to anticipate because you feel that you feel that trigger moving. You start to, your brain starts to know when it's going to go off. So what you really need to, uh, what I recommend to my friends is getting something with, uh, like a trigger that breaks clean. Um, like it, it can be an index finger. Um, I use a thumb release. I also have a hinge that I use, um, you know, in the off season, because I think it just reinforces a, an unanticipated shot. But those triggers that are adjustable, but they break clean, kind of like you, if you had a really high dollar rifle, you know, those triggers don't move. You apply pressure and they don't move. You apply more pressure, they don't move. And then finally you get to the, the, the amount of pressure that it takes and it breaks clean. And that's what you want. So the way I shoot, and how I beat it, I actually used a hinge, but, um, you know, there's, there's, there's other ways. Um, but basically you want to get a release like that, that has a, uh, an adjustable trigger. I like to, especially when I'm training, trying to beat target panic, I like to set it heavy. 
so that you can load up on that trigger. There's no fear of it going off because it's heavy. You can wrap your finger around, get it deep in that knuckle. If, you, if I'm talking about an index finger here. And then, like I said, you stare at your spot. You stare at your bullseye. You stare at your deer's vitals, your 3D target, whatever, and let your pin float. You got to get comfortable with the pin float. The pin float is normal. That's not bad. A pin float is good. <laughs> There's things you can do to minimize your pin float, but you can't let that freak you out. Just keep staring at the spot, apply pressure. And then what I do is I squeeze my back muscles. So I pull through, I imagine like my release hand or my release arm elbow. I, re I imagine myself trying to pull straight back and touch it to like a door or a wall or something like two inches behind it. There's obviously nothing there, but that's what I imagine. I pull, pull, pull. I don't squeeze my finger on my thumb release. I don't squeeze my thumb. They don't move. It's preloaded. And then I just pull, pull, pull. It applies pressure and it builds pressure until the shot breaks. And it, the first time you do it, it's like, whoa. I remember seeing your face mark that <laughs> first time. You were like, you kind of like your whole body convulsed. You know, it's like, like, oh, shit. Because, yeah, because you didn't have you. You let go of that control. Um, so, you, you, what? You, but after you do it, you do it over and over, and that's why people say you know blind bailing is a really good drill. It is. It's because you're getting used to that surprise release. You're just pulling, pulling, pulling. The 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 shot goes, and all you were focusing on was staring at the spot and pulling through. Um, it's 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 simple. But it takes time, especially for someone that's gone through years and years and years of doing it wrong. Like I spent about, I spent a good six to eight weeks. I had a bag target in my living room <laughs> and, you know, I'd put my daughter down for bed and I would just hammer that thing and over and over and over. And I told myself from the, the first day, I'm never going to squeeze my thumb. I'm never going to squeeze my index finger again. I'm going to hook it around i'm going to preload it and then it won't move the only movement is me squeezing my back muscles it's pulling 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 with my release arm with my back muscles and building that pressure until the shot breaks so it's it's uh that's how i did it you can still do it by squeezing the trigger but i think guys run into i think at target panic it's a little easier to to creep back in when you still do that like finger squeeze like a slow steady squeeze some guys can do it i have a buddy that i shot with at the total archery challenge and he's a stud archer and that's how he shoots but uh if you watch my my video on the total archery challenge you'll see a couple of my buddies and these guys they shoot pretty good but there's a couple in there that they punch the trigger and you can see like there's no follow through on the, on the back end. You know, it's a, it's a, like a tense punch and they were shooting good, but they, if they shot more often, they would run into those issues, um, you know, of anticipating the shot. And, and what you can, what, what I found too, is like on shots on deer, you know, when I, when I was punching the trigger, the, those target panic, uh, issues really come out in high pressure situations. So you get this big buck step in front of you, you draw back, you set that pin. And as soon as, usually as soon as it hits Brown, you're touching it off because you want it, you want to hit that spot so bad. This is your one chance 
You know, it all rides on this and you got, you kind of lose everything that you tried to focus on all summer, you know, just slowly squeezing the trigger. But now with this new way of shooting, which is unanticipated, it's a very calm and relaxed way of shooting. Like I was shooting at those targets, those little tiny targets at the total archery challenge, you know, at a hundred plus yards with no anxiety whatsoever, because all I need to do is just stare at the spot, execute my shot and the arrow's going to go there. So when that deer comes out and it's a high pressure situation, I stare at the spot on the deer where I want to hit. I put my pin on it. I load my trigger. I let the pin float. You know, it's, it's floating, it's floating. And as I'm just slowly building pressure. So that's how I do it. It's, uh, it's worked very well for me. I've helped a lot of my friends kind of work through some things. Um, and I had it bad. I have a, a hole in my, uh, a hole in my garage window at uh, the very first house I bought because I, I sent an arrow through there. Um, I had target panic so bad. <laughs> this is a true story. I drew back. I, I got I had it so bad at one point, I couldn't draw my bow back without hammering the trigger, target or not. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, and I've heard stories, and, yeah, I, I became that guy. And I drew back. I put the pin on the window, and I said, okay, I'm not going to pull the trigger. <laughs> And I set one through the window and I was oh. like, Oh boy, <laughs> you know, there's, it was, that was like, that's like as bad as target panic gets right there. Yeah. And, and I was there. So, Man. well, uh, um, I would, I would suggest it, Sorry, that was a long story, but I would suggest that guy getting, um, if he wants to stick with a trigger release, Carter makes some really good, uh, triggers that break clean. They're adjustable. You can set them heavy. For training, you can lighten them up a little for hunting. Once you ingrain that, ingrain that shot sequence in. Um, there's some other ones I, I gave you. Uh, my old trigger release. That's a good one. Uh, True Ball Beast. Um, you know, but I would stick with something that has an adjustable trigger that breaks clean. And uh, you got to just put in the work. There's lots of videos, and John Dudley has some good ones on YouTube of some drills and stuff. But um, you got to put in the work. You got to you got to develop that new way of shooting and that's really the only way to beat target panic. You have to let go of control of you can try trying to control that pin. Let it float, run your shot execu- execution separately. Yeah, yeah, I can I can say that from from your the things we worked on together last summer, I could just see that helping me so much already. Um yeah. and so so everything you said right there I was putting into practice last summer all the way through last hunting season and now this year too. And while I haven't actually shot at a deer yet with it, so I can't, I can, I can't point to an in the field experience yet um, because of just the way my season went last year. Um, I can definitely say that I feel more comfortable. I don't have the target panic moments that I used to have just when shooting, you know, behind the house and stuff. I remember that I described to you that sometimes, you know, I draw back and I put the pin on. And, and one thing I did a lot, which you just said is I want, I would want to pull the trigger as soon as it hit the bullseye. Um, yeah. or sometimes I would get this like impulse to shoot, but I'd stop myself. So I'd like, yeah. I'd have this like clinch up moment where I, my trigger or like my brain sent a, a firing wave that said, shoot. And then I stopped, but I still had this like jerk. Um, yeah. So nothing like that yeah. happens at all now. And, um, even a stupid example, but when I went to go get my most recent bow set up um, with uh, with a guy, we went and got 
arrow set up and got the new bow all all set up and adjusted. And we went out behind the shop to do some long range shooting with it. And in the past, I probably would have I would have had some nerves around you know shooting at fifty or sixty yards in front of this guy who's definitely a better archer than me. And especially you know I was using this whole new shooting process now, so I was like, oh god, am I going to be able to? You know, I'd only been practicing it at closer ranges up to that point because um, you know you and me had been working on just kind of easing my way into it. So I hadn't been shooting out to sixty yards with this new way. But we're checking the bow, and he's like, all right, let's try out here at 60. So I'm like, well, all right, here we go. And in the, my previous life, I totally would have punched one off and just had a flyer. Yeah. And I did this, and I just stuck to kind of my mantra, just you know, follow that process like you said and let it float, and then just slowly went through and pulled. And I didn't have anything like that. And miraculously, I was bullseyeing it like, like, a, like a pro. Normally, yeah. what I, not what I would have done in that situation in the past. So that small example of a higher pressure situation, I could see it already paying off. And uh, yeah. it's, only, it's only gotten better since then. So uh, I'm excited yeah. to put that into play for sure. Um, I, feel, I, feel, uh, I feel compelled to answer the guy's question on a, on a release type. So I'm just going to throw a couple. If he's going to stick with an a index finger, get yourself a Carter Quickie or a Carter-like mic. Those are two good ones that have adjustable triggers. There's no travel. You can, you can, you know, confidently hook your finger around that trigger and load it up and let your pin float on the target and pull through. And if you have any uh, questions, call Forrest. He's the owner and he, helps you out he helped me out um when i was going through it and then there's there's three drills that will kind of if you can if you're willing to put in the work and you're willing to commit to it there's three drills that i really like it i don't have target panic issues anymore at all but i still do these three drills all the time and uh one is you just draw back and just aim you load your trigger up with your finger your thumb or your index finger whatever kind of release you're shooting put the pin on the target and you let it float and just let it float and you're you're in control of the shot you don't have to touch that off you are in control let the pin float for 15 20 30 seconds until whenever you you know your shot deteriorates let down take a breather for 30 seconds do that again and do that 20 30 times and do that for a couple weeks you know, that's a really, really good drill of just getting used to your pin float. And then the other one that, you know, you hear a lot is blind bailing. I like this one um, because it ingrains, especially if you're going to go to more of like a back tension. People say back tension release. They're talking about a hinge, but back tension is more of a method. You can shoot back tension with an index trigger. You can shoot back tension with a thumb trigger. You can shoot back tension with a hinge. Um, so that's the, the, what I was describing earlier, the pulling motion, the pull through motion. So blind bailing, you get, you can take your sight off your bow. That's probably the best, or you can close your eyes. Either one doesn't really matter, but you get at point blank range, draw back and you just don't aim at anything. Just take your sight off or whatever. So you're not looking at anything. And what you're focusing on is the pull through. And remember, your thumb, if it's a thumb trigger, your index, if it's an index finger, cannot move. You load up that trigger, and you, then it doesn't move again. That's it. And you pull with your back muscles, 
imagine pulling your elbow straight back and touching it to a wall or, or, or something behind you, and you just pull, build that pressure, a slow increase of building pressure until that shot breaks. And you do that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times until that surprise isn't a surprise anymore. It's just, it's still a surprise, but it doesn't freak you out. You're used to it. It's, it's just normal now. That's, that's a really good one. And, uh, what's the other one? Um, oh, the, the other one I like to do, and I would suggest doing this one after you, uh, you know, do the other two first. Those are kind of the bread and butter. And then the last one is I like to, uh, set a target out there, have my sight on everything. I pull back, let my pin flow, load up my trigger. And then I start my shot execution, but I try to do it really slow. I think John Dudley uh, recommended this one, and I started doing it, and I really liked it. But try to take as long as you can. Try to do the slowest back tension that you can. So what's happening is your pin is floating. You're slowly executing the shot. You're letting it happen. You're just letting your pin float. Try to let it take 10 seconds, and it won't, but try to let it take 10 seconds, just slow slow gradual increase and pull until that shot breaks try to slow the process down so that you get to the point where that's not freaking you out anymore that's just normal that's you in control of the shot you can run that shot execution fast on a quick shot on an animal you just pull quicker you pull through a little quicker you can run it slow if you you know if if you're doing this drill but typically you want to keep your timing you know uh, fairly consistent, like, you know, in a hunting situation, but these are, those are great drills to kind of just get used to that unanticipated release. And that, yeah. that, that's the way I was able to beat target panic. Yeah. Those are, those are helpful for me for sure. Dan, you, um, <laughs> I don't know if you want to talk about this or not, but I saw you post something on social media and I haven't got to ask you about it yet. <laughs> You had a little bit of a bow mishap that I that I can't not have us talk about real quick. What what happened, man? Dude, I straight up I straight up dry fired my bow. <laughs> how how did this happen? So I was I was shooting some air, uh, arrows at a uh, at an archery shop, and he went back and he um, put in a D loop. He put in a peep sight, and he. Um, made some adjustments to the bow. Um, I shot one arrow out of it and I have a routine, right? Where I always kind of touch the peep and then I, I draw back, I anchor. Um, and then I, you know, pull the trigger, whatever. And so the, because the peep site wasn't served in yet, I, I drew or I adjusted the peep sights. I drew back. I anchored my, you know, my kisser button. I looked through to make sure it was all right, and just subconsciously followed through with that shot sequence without an arrow in it. And uh, oof. yeah, <laughs> string so snapped, cam broke, and oh uh, no! So I got replacement parts coming. Uh, and I need to get back to the archery shop, have them fix it. And, uh, so it was just one of those dumbass moments that, um, I, you know, I <laughs> first time ever in 20 some years of shooting archery, uh, I've ever dry fired a bow or anything like that. And 
it, it's embarrassing. But I was going to say, just, that's got to be nice being in the pro shop and being that guy. <laughs> oh, well, you know, and well, you're it, the guy with the that podcast part. network, right? <laughs> no, and, and here's the, the funny part is he goes, this happens all the time. People drive <laughs> yeah. fire bows all the time. And um, even just people reaching out to me after I made it made it public that I did this, people are like, hey, man, don't beat yourself up on it. Uh, I did it last year or I did it two years ago or, man, I did it a day yesterday or whatever. So um, made me feel a little bit better. But still, it just kind of it just kind of I think people take archery equipment for granted because it's a bow. But the amount of energy and power that those things can generate is ridiculous. Yeah. And I have a big scar or a big cut. Or basically, it's a welt across the top of my hand to prove it. So, Oh, man. That yikes. was a brand new prime too, right? Yep. Brand new. Uh, probably fifth arrow I ever shot out of it. That's oh, man. brutal. Well, well, hopefully folks will hear your story and that'll help them all be just a tiny bit more aware of not making the same subconscious mistake. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So switching gears completely here. Um, we got a question here from Scotty and Scotty has two questions. So both of these could take us in, in long winding paths. So I don't know where this is going to take us, but question number one. Do you record sightings or deer activity in any kind of hunting journal? I've attempted a few apps, but most aren't useful when trying to pattern deer movements, stands based on wind or weather, blah, blah, blah. Um, excellent spreadsheets are pain because of manually having to enter weather. But I'm looking for any kind of other recommendations or templates. Um, I'll say really quick what I do. I have not done a good job. In past years, I've tried to do a hunting journal where every hunt or every day I record a few basic things like what stand I was in, what was the wind direction, a handful of other factors like that, and then what deer I saw and some information on those lines. I've done that for portions of seasons but but never done a great job of following through. What I have done, though, is done a really thorough job when I'm targeting a specific buck. So, you know, like with Holyfield, now that I'm so focused on him, I have went and created a spreadsheet documenting every daylight sighting or trail camera photo and then all that data so all the weather data all the other information around where he came from where he was going what time what was the wind speed what was the wind direction what was the barometric pressure what was the temperature was it a cold front or not a whole bunch of stuff like that so i've been able to do that and it's not too difficult to do that if it's like one deer you're after or or maybe even just like mature buck sightings um but it would be hard to do that every single day, all the time. But I know people that do. I wish I would do that, but I just haven't. Um, Dan, do you? I, you know, I haven't heard you talk too much about any kind of document. But have you started doing anything like that, or thought about doing something like that? Well, you you know this app, Mark. I use Deer Lab for for trail cameras, though. Right, but at the same time, that's how I'm basing all majority of my decision making, right? Yes, I can, um, like I will have my trail cameras in these pinch points, travel corridors, field edges, scrapes, whatever, and, and collect that data. But it's hard to use this year's data to kind of calculate where a deer is going to be, you know, unless you're in the stand, right? So if you're in the stand and you see a buck, that's easy. You can make that move 
right then and there. However, all the all the trail camera pictures that I'm using previously through previous seasons, I can use that data to help me forecast deer movement for the next year. So it's like, okay, well, I have a northwest wind and I have it on this day or this moon phase or this barometric pressure or whatever, then I can say, well, I can, you know, do my sort, you know, that you can, you're able to sort all that data and you can say, well, this tree stand or this trail camera uh, location, which is pretty much represents, uh, for me, the way I use it represents a tree stand location. You, you are able to forecast your movement and look for the best possible tree stand location for those conditions. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I love that app for the trail camera thing. I wish you could, I wish you could just add like the actual sighting in there too. And you, I know actually some guys have emailed me and said that they just kind of fudge it. Like they'll upload a trail camera photo. That's actually not of a buck, but they'll just like title it or something like sighting yeah. on this date and then ad- manually adjust the time and date and everything to make sure it's the right thing. And then it pulls in the proper weather and everything. Um, yeah. but, but yeah, that's a, that's a great tool. It, 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 I wish it was both cause it would be almost yeah. a perfect option. Um, right. Andy, what do you do? Um, I uh, I have uh, a log back from the very first year I ever hunted, which was 1997. Um, so I keep like a, a like a, a little journal, basically. But um, you know, I start it with AM hunt, RPM hunt, all day hunt, uh, where at. Um, then I do you know like the wind direction, temperature, uh, precipitation, moon phase that sort of thing. One thing I really <laughs> regret not, not keeping track of was the barometric pressure, especially after listening to Mark Drury. I was like, gosh, darn it. You know, what I, mean? like, <laughs> yeah. I kept everything except that one thing that he thinks is probably the most influential. So, um, but like cloud cover, all that. And then obviously, you know, what I saw, uh, the deer activity, if I do see, um, a mature deer, I, I kind of, uh, I'll mention how he was moving, what he was doing, was he using the wind, was his wind to the back, you know, so trying to build, you know, basically trying to build trends. Um, and that's really helped me, uh, you know, zero in on areas. You know, a lot of guys like ask me, you know, cause I, d- I don't get to hunt a lot, but you guys will ask like, you know, you seem like you don't hunt very much, but you're efficient. And I think that's part of what really has helped me is that, um, um, you know, the, the different areas I do hunt because I have logs, I can go back and see like, okay, you know, this area tends to hold, you know, deer, you know, three and a half years or older, you know, early in the season. You know, I've, I've, I've noticed that now after hunting there six, seven years, like all my sightings have been before October 10th. So now I know that, you know, even though I have hunted there on and off, you know, throughout the whole season. Now I have that area where I can focus on those dates and to maximize my time there because I, there's a spot in Northern Ohio that the first week of the season is the only time frame I've seen a mature deer. And it's been that way for 10 years. I've never seen one pass. I think October 12th, um, the crops come out and they just, they just kind of leave. It's a low deer density area. So, uh, my point is I, I, I'm able to, to hunt that 
you know, during that first week, but then I have also other areas that seem to trend more into mid-October. So then I can, you know, jump to these areas that seem to uh, heat up more during that time. And then obviously your rut spots, um, you know, your late season spots, you know, it's basically I'm looking for trends of when I see mature deer activity, but every once in a while, it doesn't happen often, but every once in a while in Michigan, you can, uh, you know, you can develop those trends on an individual buck, um, that happened with my buck last year. Um, you know, and then that really helps you kind of zero in on his tendencies. Yeah. 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 It's, it definitely think, I definitely think that recording as much data as you can will help most people. Like I, I need to do a better job. I'd like to be keeping a journal like you are, um, or at least doing something like the trail camera tool, like Deer Lab is that Dan's doing. I think all this stuff helps you wrap your head around everything that's going on. And, and I know there are a handful of different apps for your phone where you can record sightings and record different things. And I haven't found one that's terribly like easy to use and, and gets the information that I want in there. Like I haven't, I have not found the perfect solution yet. I've looked at them all, and there's good things about some, and there's some things I wish they'd change. I still haven't found the one that I want to actually use that's more effective than a than a journal or a spreadsheet or something like deer lab for trail cameras so it's a it's important stuff though um so scotty's second question is about you know he, he's asking for he asked for a video but we'll we'll give him a chat um could you explain your utilization of the wind when you hunt? I get confused when talking about enter, entry and exit strategies and hunting wind conditions. If we want to be downwind of a destination and the deer want to be downwind, that's confusing. Um, so this is something that, yeah, we talk about a lot. How do you balance How do you balance your being safe with the wind but also thinking about how deer are using the wind. And um, I know, Dan, you and me, I feel like our own perspectives on this have kind of evolved over the whole course of the podcast too, um, for sure. So do you want to tackle any portion of this to start, Dan? So it sounds to me like he's relatively new to hunting or starting to get into the details of hunting the wind. And so what I will say is to think like, think of it, as 90 degree angles, right? If a deer is going to, you know, walk north and south and there's a west wind, you want to be on the east side of that trail. So your scent is not going to be, you know, blowing their direction at all. So, you know, if the deer are hanging out in the, on the west quadrant, so to speak, you need to be on the east quadrant. Or if the deer are on the south and the wind is coming from the south, you need to be on the north quadrant. So it's just a it's just a matter of basically having the wind blow into your face while you're walking to your tree stand in hopes that the deer are going to be in front of you. You know, they're going to be between you and where the wind is blowing from. So, you know, and then as time progresses and you become more comfortable with hunting the wind, and this is where I'm at now in my life is getting really aggressive with with wind directions to where if the wind shifts a little bit either direction you're probably going to be get busted by where you think the deer are coming from but just just remember that you don't want the wind to blow where you feel the deer are going to be i mean that's pretty simple yeah the most simplest simplest aspect of it and especially if you're just starting deer hunting and you're and you're not trying to kill a mature buck, if you're more focused on, you know, 
whatever deer you see, a doe or young bucks or whatever it might be. In those cases, I think it, it, it's smart to go completely safe and just make sure that your wind, so, you know, like you explained, Dan, your scent is blowing a direction opposite of where you think the deer are going to be. Now, where this gets um, a little more interesting, though, and I'll let Andy, I'll let you dive into this a little bit more, but when you start targeting mature bucks, then you want to start considering how mature bucks are using the wind because they, in many cases, are using their noses, which is their number one defense mechanism. They're using their noses to make decisions about where they're headed and to check, you know, to see if it's secure. So in many cases, they are walking towards something, a food source or a bedding area, with the wind somehow in their face or quartering to them so that they can check an area as they walk through. So then you got to start thinking about that. If I want to hunt this place, how do I think a buck's going to use the wind to approach it? And that's going to help you determine where to be sitting. But at the same time, you need to take that information as a data point, but then also be set up so that if he's coming in with the wind somewhat in his favor, so you can still manage to have your wind avoid him. But usually to get those two things happening at the same time, it's going to be by a narrow margin. Like the wind's going to be blowing by a narrow margin off of wherever he's coming from. So this takes a, a level of understanding of your area. Um, you really need to have a high level understanding of how a deer probably is going to approach, how he'd be using this wind, and how you can set up to you know, not spook him, but at the same time be in the right place. Now, that's kind of a high level idea. Um, and then two, same thing goes for when you're approaching a tree stand back to the very beginning. When you're coming into a tree stand or leaving a tree stand, now it just comes down to making sure you're not having your wind blow to where those deer are at all. Um, but Andy, can you take things uh, to the next level? Or, or I guess say whatever you want to about this. But if you want to take things to the next level when it comes to mature bucks and wind stuff, I figured you'd be a good guy to talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I think you guys pretty much nailed it. I mean, what I, I'll... I agree with Dan, what he says, especially when you're hunting kind of like a, a travel corridor, you, you know, you kind of want to be on the downwind, uh, downwind side of travel. Um, you know, that might be something I might sit like during the rut, you know, maybe a funnel between two blocks of woods or between two bedding areas or something like that. You know, you could have your, have your wind blowing into somewhat of a, a dead zone if there is one, or at least an area where you least expect deer to come from. Um, but you know, uh, also like you know like you said mark you got to think how like a mature buck you know what what does he do you know the different times of the year so like during the rut i like to sit on like downwind sides of doe bedding area so where i know that there's groups of does uh you know i'll i'll push the envelope and get on the downwind side of that close as i can without bumping deer out and but in that that's an area that bucks tend to gravitate towards naturally during the breeding phase so you're you're not only getting close to does which attract bucks but you're also in the 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 portion of that bedding area where on that given day when uh, you know the wind's out of the north and you're on that south side that's bucks are going to gravitate towards that side anyway to scent check that bedding area so you're, you're 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 basically just playing the percentages you know if you sat on the east side it's you, you might get one because it's the rut and things happen but the bucks that are you know you might get some young bucks that just kind of bust right in and you know are, are, are scent checking them but the, the mature buck will typically hit the downwind side kind of on the on the edge of the cover and, and that's where i like to set up so I, I try to think more of like 
what does the mature buck do um you know during that time that would be like a like a a typical a high percentage rut spot for me i have several spots like that that is kind of more on the downwind side of like where a lot of where a lot of does live essentially um you know and then like when outside of the rut you know plant you know how do i hunt the wind like if i'm if i'm bed hunting and, and to be honest with you the the the, the most mature bucks that i have shot I've, I've 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 killed some mature ones during the rut don't get me wrong um i love the rut but it seems like, you know, probably my four or five most mature buck have come outside of the rut. And typically for me, it's more like kind of early season, mid-October. And I'm, I'm hunting closer to where where they live, where they bed. And a lot of times, you know, mature bucks will bed in a certain area on a specific wind. Not always, there, but there are definitely wind-specific beds. So, you know, there's, there's uh, you know, there might be a buck bedding area where he he'll bed there on a north wind or like maybe that's one of his beds on a north wind. So, you know, you got to, through your scouting, you know, you can find those spots that, you know, when you get that north wind, you can hunt close to that bed. When you get that west wind, you can hunt close to the, the bed that is used on a west wind. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. No, it definitely yeah. does. Uh, okay. So it's, it, it's, it, I don't want to say it's high level. I guess it is high level. There's a lot of guys this that do this this is not new um but it, it does take a lot of work it takes a lot of scouting it takes a uh, you know a fair bit of knowledge but it's just it just takes a lot of time you're putting in the work you're finding dozens and dozens and maybe even hundreds of these beds and then you have you have those to plug in you know in the early season in mid-october when things aren't heated up when everybody's kind of waiting for things to break loose you know, I don't know. I, I, I always, I like the rut because you see more, it's exciting, but at the same time, I don't know. I, I, I kind of feel like my chances at certain deer kind of go downhill. Um, unless I know for a fact that, you know, a certain buck, you know, for year, you know, two or three years, he's, he tends to be in this little side of this marsh and, you know, during the first week of November or something like that. And you do get those trends, but I really like that early season and even mid October, um, you know, it can be up and down. It's definitely not like lights out, but you can, you can make more calculated moves. Um, but it just takes a lot of prep time and a lot of preparation, scouting, that sort of thing. But I will say this too, like, you know, when you're hunting a buck, you know, in his bedding area, Dan, you mentioned kind of hunting like an off wind where the, you know, the, the wind's kind of in the buck's favor. I believe this is just my opinion that the buck will move farther. You know, you can set up further back or play it a little safer. If the, if the deer's wind is in his favor, I believe if he's smelling that direction where he wants to go all day long and there's not a trace, I think I, I do believe that I've had some pretty early encounters and times of the year where you shouldn't, even in Michigan, um, where the opposite, you know, if the wind's kind of, where he's, you know, the direction where he, you think he's going to go and the wind's not in his favor. I've seen him, I've, I've actually seen a buck in his bed with the wind, not in his favor towards the food source. And he sat there literally till dark till I had to get down. And I sat up in the stand watching him through my binoculars and then he stood up. So that's my opinion. I believe that like when the wind's not in their favors and I'm basing this, when I'm saying this, I'm, I'm talking Michigan. So it's, it's a little different. Um, there's other pressured States too, but you know, I, I believe when the, the wind is in their favor and they feel safe and they've been smelling that direction for 
a good portion of the night without any, um, you know, sign of danger that they will get up. And in the closer you are to their bedding area too, there's, there's typically a, you know, they pick those spots cause they're safe. There's, there's typically a, a radius there where they, where they do feel comfortable getting up and moving in daylight, but it, it might be steps. It might be, you know, it might be a, a 30 yard radius from his bed where he feels safe, or it might be a hundred yard radius. It just depends on the terrain. Um, you know, that's something that just comes with a lot of, uh, experience, you know, different types of terrain and, and different types of habitat and different pressure and that sort of thing. And you got to kind of learn, you'll, you'll learn how far you need to push it and how far you can. And I always tell guys to be more aggressive because when you're more aggressive, you're either going to do it right or you're going to make a mistake. And if you make a mistake, good job. Cause you just learned something, you know, if you don't any, make any mistakes, you're not learning much. So mistakes are good because especially early, make a lot of them. Yeah. I made a crap ton of them. That's how you learn the mistakes lessen over time. You know, I still make them, but that's, that's, that's how you get better. You got to make the mistakes. So I always say, be aggressive. You might blow it out. If you do, you just learn something. Mm-hmm. Okay. Next, next time you'll do it a little better. When, when you're talking to a guy who is a pretty good deer hunter, like he, he's been doing it for a while. He listens to the podcast. He reads the magazines. He's killed a few nice bucks. Um, he likes it a lot, but he hasn't made it over that hump to the fact to, to the point of consistency where year in and year out, he's on mature bucks and, achieving those goals every year is there like a one thing or two things that you find like consistently like usually it's a or b that will help you get over the hump with most people is there anything that like jumps out to you the common thing i see with the guys that like you know are successful year in and year out and 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 not even just on one big deer like usually on a couple um you know they're usually just they're usually their level of, of commitment and time is, is much higher than, uh, you know, the guys that aren't, and I, and I'm not, I'm not saying that that's bad or anything it, it, in, in a lot of ways, it might even be good not to be that committed to deer hunting, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, there's, there, there comes a sacrifice with that level of commitment. You know, there's family sacrifice, there's sacrifice, maybe with other things that you enjoy doing. Um, you know, maybe you're not, you love to fish, but you don't fish because you're completely obsessed with deer hunting and you're devoting all your time in that. I can, I can probably be thrown into that category. Like I have given up pretty much everything else for the little time I do have. I almost always spend it on hunting or archery almost always. So that's what I see. Those guys, they, they put in an amount of time, and they have a level of commitment that's just, um, it's just, it's above and beyond what most guys even believe they can do, um, or are willing to do. Um, and, and I'm talking the guys that kind of do it, you know, you, you can, you can buy some property and, and spend a lot of money and, and kill big bucks. I'm, I'm not talking about those guys. I'm talking about the guys that kind of, you know, do it how we do. Um, it, it does, it does. It takes a, um, a level of commitment and sacrifice that I, I don't necessarily recommend to people. Um, you know, you, there's, there's look at some of the best deer hunters that we know. Dan Infault will be honest with you. And he'll say that he regrets 
some of the things he missed, you know, in his younger years with his family because he was not willing to sacrifice his hunting. So not recommending that, but that's what you see with, with those guys that take it to the ne- that next level. It's a, it's a level of commitment and obsession that just is, it's, it's a whole nother stratosphere. Yeah. Right. And I would add, I would add one thing and, uh, Andy, you're kind of an outlier because you travel to a lot of different states, but you know, you've collected your data, uh, over years of hunting throughout those, those properties. But a lot of the people are close to where they hunt, live close to where they hunt and they are able to go drive down the roads and glass at night or do scouting every day or check trail cameras multiple times, um, throughout, throughout a week where, um, for example, once I got married, my time and being able to follow deer, uh, on an individual basis took a huge dive, um, yeah. I, or more, more, or more when I started having kids, but I was on the property less. I was scouting less. I was relying more on trail cameras. And as we all know, trail cameras are just a sample of what's going on on the property. So the, I think some of the guys who are consistently killing big bucks are like you said, dedicating a lot of time to it, but at the same time, able to scout, live close and be aware of everything that's going on on the properties that they do hunt. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, a a portion of my hunting, um, I'll say is, is like that. I, I hunt some spots that are close to home and close to work that are not good. They're just plain and simple. They're not good, but they get me out hunting. Um, and you know, every once in a while I can turn up a, a good bucket at those spots. So I'm able to hunt more by having a few of those spots close to home. And yes, I'm sacrificing quality, um, for the sake of just being able to go out and hunt. I still hunt them smart and I still look for, you know, a buck that I'm interested in, but you know, I'll lower my standards some and my out of state trips are always short. So, you know, I, I shoot nice, I've shot some nice deer, but I'm not that guy that's going to say, you know, I have to shoot a five-year-old 160. I'm not that guy. I'm not. Um, when I go on those trips, I want a meaningful experience. I want a nice hunt. And if it, you know, if it ends with me shooting a, a nice deer with my bow, I'm happy. That's it. And, you know, I, I used to fall into that, that category that you, where you kind of compare to other, you compare yourself to other guys like, gosh, you know, he has, you know, he has all these leases or he goes on these outfitted hunts or, you know, he's got this huge wall of, you know, one eighties and, you know, this guy lives in Kansas and, you know, I, I, I used to kind of fall into that and it really just, it made me more cynical and ruins I the experience. Remember. What's that? It ruins it, the experience. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and it's, you got to remember hunting isn't a competition. Everybody, it's not a level playing field. You, you work with what you can do. Uh, you can do more if you're willing to sacrifice more. Um, and just be happy with you got nobody, no, nobody is going to care what your wall looks like when you die. Right. Nobody is going to care. So really like go out and just have some cool experiences, you know, go, go out and have fun, shoot a nice deer. You know, if a 125 comes by and you're in North Dakota and it's a three and a half year old buck and you want to shoot him, shoot him. He's an, that's a nice deer. You just had an epic hunt with an epic view on a sweet 
road trip. You know what I mean? Like, yep. I don't know. I, I kind of switched gears on that a long time ago. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't compare myself to anybody else. It's just, it's, it, it does, it ruins the experience and just it makes you kind of a grumpy hunter. So you just kind of do your own thing, worry about yourself and, you know, just have fun with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm right there with you. And, and I, me too, for a while there, I was so concerned with like what other people would think about what I shot. And then finally got to the point where it just doesn't matter it, to your point. Just enjoy yourself, do it for yourself, for your own reasons. And, uh, the rest of it will take care of itself. Um, so let's hop over to another question real quick. This is from Joe via email and he says that he heard me and Dan speaking about washing everything in scentless detergents and all that kind of stuff. But his question is this, would it help or hinder to wear those same hunting clothes when you go out scouting so that you get smells of the brush and dirt and other stuff like that um, on your gear? In theory, he seems to think this would work, but does it actually? And, um, you know, if so, then he also is curious about specific scent control ideas for boots. He wears them often all over his hunting farm, um, again, because he wants to get the smells of the environment on his boots. Um, he's curious if there's any reality to that or, or not. Um, Andy, thoughts on wearing your hunting gear when you're scouting and stuff, and if that helps? Um, I do not, uh, you know, if I, if I was scouting in season, like scouting with the stand on my back, ready to set up at a moment's notice. Yeah, sure. I'd, I'd probably have my hunting gear on, but other than that, um, like what I'm doing now, I do not. Um, I practice scent control about as to the point where I, I wash my gear and I take a shower. Um, that's it. I, I, I've, I don't really take it any farther than that. Um, my scouting gear, I usually wash it in scent free stuff, but I, I always figure, you know, once it's been on me, it's sort of contaminated. I don't, I don't even know that I believe that washing it really does that much for me. Um, but in my mind, it helps a little bit. I pay more attention to, than, uh, to my boots than anything. Um, I think that's the one piece that is always touching the ground. Um, so, it, and it can leave a lingering effect. So I, I, I take more care of my boots than, than anything else. Um, but no, to answer his question, I, I have some like dedicated scouting clothes, which aren't anything special. Um, and I just kind of keep those washed in the same scent free detergent and just, you know, after I wear them, I'm usually, if I'm scouting, I'm usually kind of sweaty after and I, uh, I wash them. Yeah. So what do you do to, to manage the scent with those boots? Um, I, Your well, hunt, I, hunting I don't, boots. yeah, yeah. Um, I keep them in a, a little tote. Um, I don't wear them other than hunting. Um, and, and then I'm going to speak on hunting around here, like places where I hunt repeatedly. Um, this is, this is what I do. Rubber boots. Um, I'll, I'll use some activated carbon powder that I pour into them. Um, after each hunt, or sometimes I'll use zeolite. Um, I don't know if you, you remember Jim Brocker. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, so, you know, him and I had a conversation a long time ago and, you know, he's much smarter man than me when it comes to that kind of stuff. So, um, I believe that that helps. Um, I, I can't tell you the last time a deer smelled my trail walking in with, with these boots. So they, they don't, they don't go in the car. They're not on my feet while I'm driving. They stay in the tote. 
I put them on, I hunt. When I'm done, I put them back in the tote, sprinkle a little carbon in there. Um, and then they're not brought out again until I hunt again. Now, uh, the, when I'm on a road trip, um, if it's a, you know, in Iowa, I, 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 we hunt some places where there's not terrible walks. I'll still wear those and I'll still treat them the same way. But in Southern Ohio, I wear more of like a hiking boot and I'm there on a short term. I'm probably going to sit in the spot once. Um, you know, I, I don't really enjoy walking, you know, a mile or more in those rubber boots. So I'll, I'll wear more of a hiking boot scent control there is in my opinion pretty futile uh it's just uh you know you're, you're working up a sweat walking a mile carrying 30 40 pounds of gear on your back so you, you stink you, your your scent control there in my opinion is just playing the wind i try to walk where i don't think deer will walk and i try to play the wind and you know i just go for it like that in those states though what i've what i've observed is that deer are much more tolerant of of human scent like man you know you know a mature buck comes by smells you yeah he's, he's still probably gonna bust but i've had you know in some of those less pressured states it just they just don't have the negative reaction that they do here and, and probably in some other states like new york and pennsylvania i'm i'm assuming there but um so you can get a, you can get away with a little more um but i don't worry about it as much when i when i have a lot of hiking to do you know, I'll just wear my good my good hiking boots. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense, and I agree. the The rubber boots, even the best ones, they're they're great for your regular everyday stuff. But as soon as you start hiking more than a mile or something like that, or like during shed hunting season, you can be walking around a lot. Man, it it just pays to switch to a hiking boot for a comfort mm-hmm. standpoint and just making it there in one piece. Um, yeah. Now to the other questions though, I'll just add, I, I agree with you on the scouting clothes. I wouldn't wear my hunting clothes, um, you know, you know, for any other reason except for hunt really. And then I'm just keeping them washed, keeping them stored somewhere where they're scent free. Um, and then same thing with the boots. I, I don't take things quite as far as you do with the zeolite powder. Um, but I do keep them stored somewhere where it's not, you know, I don't keep them inside, keep them out in my truck or in my barn. Um, usually store in a tote during you know road trips and stuff, and then uh, I spray them down when I'm going hunting, and then I also put some, spray some nose jammer on the spray some oh, nose yeah. jammer on the bottom too, which which I found I think helps some. Um, I've I've had deer come walking, mature bucks come walking right up my trail, almost like they're intrigued by it, but don't really know what it is, um, mm-hmm. or at least don't spook. Um, and then I pour some. Uh, I, I know that dead down wind makes it. I don't know what it actually is, but some kind of scent absorbing powder. I pour I put that in the inside of my boots um, yeah. when I'm done, and it kind of absorbs some of the moisture and, and sweaty smell and stuff, I think, out of that. Um, so that's kind of what I do on the boot front. Dan, anything else you'd add there? Uh, if there's one product, and I know it's it. this is crazy what I do, is if there's one thing I wear, I don't, I'm not a freak about scent control on like boots per se, but I use a lot of nose jammer throughout the year and I walk through a lot of pastures. So from exit and entry routes, I'm spraying a lot of nose jammer and I'm spraying uh, or I'm stepping in as much manure as I can on the way to the tree stand. So um, just, you know, I was told told by an old timer to do that, and I've always done that. If I can find a pile of poop, I'm going to step in it. 
<laughs> it makes sense. It, it makes yeah, sense. It does. And, yeah. and scouting, I do most of my scouting during shed season. So unless I get a property that is close to, you know, even when I get properties that are close to hunting season, I, I, I haven't really scouted them. I'm running and gunning. So I'm doing my scouting in my hunting clothes because I'm going to be hunting. So, um, my scouting is done during shed season or, or running gun style. Yep. Makes sense. All right. Quick rapid fire question here before we have to wrap it up. Alex from Instagram asked me, me personally, what I use for my plot screens. And I'll just answer this really quickly. I usually plant a mixture of Egyptian wheat and sorghum to provide this kind of tall barrier of cover around food plots and stuff like that, or areas that you need to access um, without being seen. This year, I'm just planting straight Egyptian wheat. I just bought some cheap Egyptian wheat from the feed mill. Going to see how that works. Um, I've heard good things. This stuff grow. kind of looks like corn, sort of. It, it grows tall and thick. Um, so this way, I can have something like a food plot, even adjacent to a big, wide-open crop field, but it's feeling secluded, so you can't see it inside of that food plot, and that achieves a couple things for you. If, there's, you know, if you're within sight of a road, this keeps people on the road from being able to see into your food plot, keeps deer in your food plot from seeing things going on by the road, or if you need to walk into your property and you don't want animals in the food plot to see you walking, this is another great way to keep that from happening. A um, whole bunch of different benefits there. So definitely recommend the whole food plot screen idea. If you can manage land, that's what I'm doing there. Um, real quick, last question for you two. Um, Nick wants to take his hunting to another level. He's been into whitetail hunting in Michigan. Now wants to try chasing mule deer or elk out of state. He has tons of questions related to that. I'm not going to have us go through all those, but really quick. He's wondering if we have any recommended resources, um, to help with this process of figuring out how to do an out of state hunt. Um, anything, I know both of you guys have done a few out of state mule deer or elk or antelope hunts in your case, Andy, any quick tip or quick recommended website or podcast or resource to help plan that stuff. Andy, yeah. any thoughts? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it's, it's that whole research thing out West can be a little overwhelming. Um, there's two, uh, companies that I know are pretty popular. One is called Epic Outdoors. And the other is called Hunt and Fool. And they do charge like a yearly membership. But what that gives you is uh, a, magazine, a monthly magazine um, that breaks down each state and species and unit, uh, draw odds. Um, and it gives you access to their consultant guys who uh, you can call them. As long as you're a member, you can call them anytime. And you can... Uh, ask those questions. Um, you know, like, you know, I want to hunt mule deer, um, but I want to hunt them next year. What are my options? You know, there's, there's certain States where that's just not going to happen, but there are States where it can happen. Um, and it's, it might not necessarily be what's considered a trophy hunt, but it, it's considered out West. They call it more of like an opportunity hunt. So there, there, there are situations or maybe your goal is, Hey, I want to hunt 180 inch mule deer they'll be able to kind of build you, uh, uh, like, a a program of, of, you know, hunt here, 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 build up your experience of hunting mule deer. And then by the time you have four or five points, you can draw this tag and 
Colorado and you'll be in the neighborhood of 180 inch mule deer. So those are two, uh, that come to mind, um, that are helpful. Um, and there's some really good podcasts. Uh, the rich outdoors is a really good one that I like, um, on out West hunting, um, Epic outdoors and hunt and full have their own podcast also. And they'll have, you know, species and, and state breakdown. Um, you know, that sort of thing. I'm in the same ballpark is uh is the guy that asked this question i'm hunting mule deer um this year for the first time um i did antelope last year and i'm doing an antelope mule deer combo this year so i'm kind of in that same ballpark but you have to kind of have some goals um you know what you want to be hunting i mean if you care about size you know you're going to have a different draw strategy than maybe someone like me who just wants to go often so Awesome. I would I would look into those uh, look into those two. Good good options. Uh, Dan, what would you add? Man, I know that I can't remember what podcast it was that we we talked about this, but you know, dig through the Wired to Hunt podcasts. There, there's got to be one. I don't know the number uh, specifically, but um, the uh, we we've talked about it several times about how to prep for. Uh, western trips but um as far as shameless promotion is concerned uh they're on the sportsman's nation uh western big game feed there's a podcast called rookies in the backcountry and these guys have never hunted out west before and they're they're planning for it so all of their guests are somewhat experts uh per se uh, uh, or people who have done Western hunts before and is, are basically giving the hosts of the podcast information about hunting the West. So a lot of good content there. Cool. Cool. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Good stuff there. I will throw in uh, a few other recommendations. Gohunt.com is a website that again, there's a membership yep. fee, but if you become yep. a member, there's tons of information as far as, Everything you know for each state, for each different species, the different draw odds, the different units, actual really detailed breakdowns of each unit in each state. I found that very helpful. Um, you know, Randy Newberg's podcast, he does a lot of good stuff around helping people get figured out when they're doing their first out of state hunts and his forum, Hunt Talk. Um, uh, or shoot, what's the URL? Um, I don't remember the URL, but just look up Randy Newberg's website. It'll take you to his forum. That's another good option. Um, and yeah, all the other podcasts you mentioned, there's tons of great information out there. We have, as Dan said, we've done some podcasts talking about our own personal experiences. So if you do a little searching through our podcast archives, you'll see some there as well. So, man, I feel like we need to wrap this one up because we've gone pretty long. Um, any, any final words, Andy, you want to leave our folks with? No, man, it was, uh, it was fun. I uh, appreciate uh, you guys having me on. It was a good time. Be happy to do it again sometime. It, it's always when are you going to write time. a book, May? <laughs> I don't think there's any books in my future. Oh, come on. There's gotta be something. <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe you and me, know. Andy, we'll see. maybe we'll sit down for seven hours one day and I'll record you talk and then I'll make a book out of it and, and take 80% of the proceeds. <laughs> what about that? <laughs> that sounds, that sounds like a plan. Sounds fair. Yeah. It sounds really fair. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Sounds uh, good. Dan, anything uh, we need to cover before we go? Science has still not allowed me to grow the finger back. So I'm good to go. 
All right. <laughs> let's uh, let's wrap this one up. And that will do it. So just our usual quick reminders. If you haven't yet subscribed on iTunes, please do that. We also would love rating or reviews there. It's a huge help. If you haven't followed us yet on YouTube, lots more coming on YouTube. So be sure to subscribe to our channel there too. And finally, thank you all for listening. I appreciate you taking time to spend with us here. I appreciate you tuning in, being a part of this community. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.